Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to National Park After Dark. We have a really fun and exciting episode today because happy Pride Month. Yeah, we're doing something a little different, and we're doing it in honor of Pride Month. And to show some love to our LBGTQ community that we have and love that are part of the National Park After Dark podcast. We see you, we love you, and we wanted to dedicate this episode to LGBTQ communities. Yeah, and we had this kind of in the works for a while, but finally now's the time. And we just got off of the call with Justin, who is our guest today. And it was such an awesome conversation. And it's not just an interview like we've done in the past with some of our guests. We shared a story like we usually do. We just invited him along for the ride. Yeah, we did. And we have this really cool story in John Muir Woods National Monument. And Justin joined us. So today we have guest Justin Yoder, who is the founder of LGBT outdoors he also has a podcast which is called lgbt outdoors podcast where he has created a community where he advocates for inclusive outdoor activities for lgbt communities and making a more diverse and accepting space in the outdoors so this is a really cool cool episode we get to talk to him we get to share stories with him we laugh joke have a good time and we're here for all of you to laugh and join us and have a great time yeah it was a a really like lighthearted, like upbeat episode for such a serious topic and of course there's a time and place for that as well but not to spoil anything I'm getting ahead of myself I'm just like want to tell everyone about it it's like (laughs) chill like we'll listen we're recording this obviously (laughs) after we just had our whole conversation and this is going to be a longer episode as I'm sure you all can see when you press the play button on here but Danielle tells a really interesting story that you probably haven't heard of before and then we're going to take a really deep dive into Justin's foundation and he had some really cool events going on so stick around hang out with us even though it's long every part of this episode is important yeah so if you don't stick around we'll know we can tell we can see it we can see it so yeah so it's a threat if you're wondering (laughs) (laughs) just kidding happy pride month (laughs) all right enjoy everyone Welcome, Justin. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. We are very excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm thrilled, beyond thrilled to be here. And it's just, it's so much fun after listening to like 140 some episodes to actually like, I'm on your podcast. This is crazy. So I'm excited. Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you for listening for so long. We know the audio in the first couple episodes were rough. So thank <laughs> you're a real you one. You're a real one. With us. It's, yeah, it's evolved a little. So that's great. That's oh, great. It's all about the evolution. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you give it? We obviously know who you are, but just everyone, for everyone else's sake, can you introduce yourself to everybody and kind of give us the rundown on yourself and your organization and just all the good stuff? Yeah, so my name is Justin Yoder, and I live in the big state of Texas. Um, I have a nonprofit called LGBT Outdoors. We're a 501c3 that is dedicated to connecting the LGBTQ community to the outdoors and to each other. Um, I've always loved the outdoors, and after coming out in 2010, um, I found it hard to find a place that I felt like I fit in, so I created one. And so that's that's a little bit about me and um, LGBT outdoors. And we we can go di- deeper into that whenever you're ready to. But 
that's that's the surface level. Well, we love it already, and we're excited to talk to you about it more in depth. And just for everyone listening, so you know how we're formatting this episode, is Justin is going to join us on a story that we have for you all today. And then we're going to dive into Justin's entire organization at the end of this and get a bunch more involved in that. So we'll be jumping around for a lot of things. But just to kind of start off, what made you want to start this organization to begin with? Yeah, so the biggest thing was, you know, I could I could really pass as a straight white male. Um, and after coming out, it would be easy for me to find any outdoor group to be able to get plugged into and, and for the most part felt comfortable. But I spent so much of my life not living my authentic self that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have to pretend that I was something I'm not or feel uncomfortable just saying this is who I am. Um, and a lot of it was I was still trying to find out who I was as well. So I wanted a place that was comfortable and I just couldn't find find that. there was There's a lot of outdoor organizations out there that help people get involved in different activities. Um, but I wanted one really that was specifically gay or LGBTQ so that I just felt like I was among my people, you know, and and mm-hmm. not put walls up or anything, but the outdoors can be a complicated place at times, as you know from your <laughs> <Yes>. podcast. <laughs> as and, we continue to learn. <laughs> right. And so I just wanted a place where, especially while I was finding out who I was, this I could be authentically myself and in nature with other people. So that's that's really that was the heartbeat at it. And it just um, it really took off more than what I was expecting. Sounds familiar. What a beautiful tribute to your yeah, sounds familiar. And what a beautiful <laughs> tribute to being authentic to yourself, not only being authentic to yourself, but creating an entire community around the outdoors and just being so much more inclusive. Because as you said, we found in many aspects at the outdoors, there's almost these stereotypes that are around mm-hmm. who belongs there. And yeah. in reality, we all belong there. And to be able to form a group that you have to make sure that that's possible is it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, thanks. That, that's, that's a huge part of it too, is breaking down stereotypes. Because a lot of times in, in our world, we're, we're told we're too gay, we, we like the city, we like the nightlife, we all this stuff that outdoors is too masculine, all these things that we often get told, but that that's not true. We had somebody once say Mm-mm. that I really love, like uh, mother nature welcomes everybody. And I loved that. And love and we that. still get pushed back on it. You know, people will get comments like, well, the squirrels don't care that you're gay and comments like this and stuff. But it's different when you can be out there with people who understand a lot of the struggles that you have faced and, um, make you can make you feel comfortable just being your authentic self. So we get a wide variety of people that are out there, people that go out on with us and, you know, um, dress so fabulous and amazing and do their dancing while they're hiking and everything and have a great time. Um, but then we have others that, you know, just look like your average hiker going down a trail, you know, and, and we want, we want everybody to feel like they can be themselves, just be you. And this is the group where you can be you and, and we're having a great time with it. That's awesome. And we kind of picked a story. So how this all kind of came about is I've had this story kind of in my back pocket for a long time. And I was always just kind of holding back on it because I wanted the right time and the right space to tell it because we followed your page for a long time. And I don't even know Uh. like when we just always I feel like have um, and you're, you know, on our feed, you'd pop up from time to time. And that's when things kind of clicked. I'm like, this would be the perfect 
perfect. Like at the time, I didn't even know you had a podcast because we were just following your Instagram page um, for your community. And I was like, yeah. I want to talk to them and, you know, see who will come on the podcast from this organization. So I was stoked when you said yes, because this story, which and Cassie's going to bring us through the park before I get into the story, but it's really about creating a community of acceptance and I think that you'll enjoy it. And I hope everyone else does too. That's awesome. I'm yeah, I'm excited. really excited. It's a surprise. Nobody knows what the story is except for Dan. I know like bits and pieces of it, but Danielle's like been hoarding it for her. So we <laughs> get to hear it at the same time. <laughs> it sounds great. I'm ready for it. Awesome. Well, I will take us to Muir Woods National Monument, which is located in California. And people travel from all over the world to pay homage to the nature of the giant redwood trees of Muir Woods. National Monument. It is located 11 miles north of Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California, and it comprises of 554 acres of federally protected land that has been designated as a national park site since 1908. This national monument is also part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, so we have been here a little bit before in another episode, just not this exact area. There are no camping facilities within this park, as Muir Woods is a day-use only area. However, this park does boast lots of opportunities for both hiking and biking through their trails along it. And they also permit weddings, which is really cool. I've seen a lot of beautiful wedding photos here and they do other special events. Do you know what this the first thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this national monument. What? Probably because I just watched, I don't know why the hell I just watched this again. I'm like not a huge fan of these movies, <laughs> okay. but the Planet of the Apes movies, the newer ones with um the one with James Franco. Where they look oh. too realistic. Yeah, they look really realistic, but yes. it's framed like, I don't think it was actually, I don't know if it was actually filmed there, Um, but there are scenes where like Caesar is let out, him and his whole like band or troop of chimps are let out to me into Muir Woods National Monument. And there's like a, bu- a bunch of pictures and like scenes of it. I have not seen this. I watched it because I love James Franco. <laughs> like I could give a shit about. <laughs> it's like the only requirement to don't watch. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah. Oh my God. I know. Actually, his brother has my heart. Oh, Dave. What a honey. But anyway, so that's like the one thing that comes to mind with this monument because I've never been personally. Have you guys? No. Nope. I haven't. No. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I've been, I've put been it on in your list, this right? Area. Yeah. It's, it's, put go. it on the list. <laughs> put it on the list. <laughs> I've been very close to this area though. So I've been to the Golden Gate Bridge and I've been in the surrounding area. So I've definitely been close, but I don't think I've technically been inside this monument. Same. Yep. Yeah. When we do our um, Alcatraz trip, we'll hit this One up day. in 2026 <laughs> when we get there and have time. <laughs> One day. <laughs> Why don't we make it there? Anyway, back to the monument itself. This landscape and proximity to the Pacific Ocean has created a vital climate for old growth coastal redwoods forests to thrive in. Thus, why almost half of John Muir Woods is made up of these old red redwood growth old forests. That's a <laughs> mouthful. <laughs> That's a mouthful, yeah. 
Say that three times fast. The climate here is cool and moist year-round. Temperatures vary between 40 to 70 degrees, which is about 4 to 21 degrees Celsius, with heavy rainfall during the winter. While the summer doesn't receive much rain because of how close it is to the ocean, the forest is regularly covered in what is called marine layer fog, and this marine layer fog forms over large bodies of water, which causes an inversion layer that is initiated by the cooling effect from the water. So I think we've all kind of seen that before if you're over an ocean or a big lake. Early morning, you have like the big fog and clouds even if you've been to have either of you been to Big Sur before no no I feel like I'm not bougie enough for Big Sur but (laughs) (laughs) you say bougie but my only experience in Big Sur is Al and I took his motorcycle into the woods in Big Sur and like we didn't want to pay for somewhere to stay and we slept on the side of the road in a tent. (laughs) So I don't know if that's considered bougie. There is a fancy restaurant there at Nepenthe, which I went to, which is very bougie. It's like over the coast, rolling mountain views and you drink these super fancy drinks with a beautiful sunset and it's expensive and bougie, if that's what you're talking about. Anyway, what I was going with with the Big Sur thing is I was going to say Big Sur has the inversion layers where there's huge clouds that go over the whole landscape Mm -hmm. where it's the same thing in the Muir Woods. And what I was getting at with this Muir Woods and the inversion and the Redwoods and why that all matters is because... Through this, it causes fog drip, which is when water drips to the ground from fog, which in then creates this environment for the redwood trees where even in these huge droughts that California often has, they're still getting plenty of water sources, which makes them able to grow and thrive the way that they're there. So that was my whole point with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool, though. Isn't it? It's such a cool fact to think of. And you don't, I would have never been like, oh, it hasn't, it hasn't rained in months, but they're surviving off of fog. Yeah. It reminds me of when I went to um, Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, like oh, right along the dream, f- by the way. <laughs> I know. Every time I hear you talk about Africa, I'm like, we need to go. We need to go. I, it's Can like we? Africa. I'll book a flight right now. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> um, Africa is my one of my biggest passions. I absolutely love it. But when you're walking along Victoria Falls, there's so much mist. It's like it's almost like a rainforest right along there, even though it doesn't rain enough to be an actual rainforest. But it's just so misty. A lot of people actually wear rain gear when hiking along it because there's so much mm. mist. But it's really cool. Can I ask, did you do that? What is it? Devil's Pool in Victoria Falls where you like hang over the edge of the waterfall? No, no, I didn't. And I actually, for some reason, I didn't find out about that until afterwards because I would have probably, I don't know if I would have done it or not. Honestly, I would have wanted to, but they have a bungee jump off of the bridge right beside it too. And (laughs) I thought that I might do that when I got there. And then when I got there, I was like, no, I'm definitely not (laughs) doing that. Because the worst part is like when you bungee jump off and it's so long, I forget how high it is, but then you just have to hang there forever as they slowly pull you back up. They don't let you down. They just slowly pull you back up to the bridge. I imagine it hurts your ankles too, It probably hurts everything, I think. It it was a lot. It looked to be a lot. Yeah. Bungee jumping is a big fear of mine, actually. It's one of the things I don't ever want to (laughs) try. Apparently me neither. (laughs) I feel you. I feel you on that. Going back, we keep derailing off of other things, but that's fine. We're going uh, for the climate here because of the fog and the 
Pacific Ocean that's right here. The climate here has allowed these redwood trees to survive for hundreds of years. Most of the old growth forest in this park is between 600 to 800 years old, but the oldest trees you can find here are 1,200 years old and plus. Keep in mind though that this is actually relatively young for redwood trees because redwood trees can live around like 2,200 years old. So they still have another thousand years in wow. their lifespan That's so to crazy. go. Yeah, crazy. Inside of Muir Woods, the largest redwood tree stands at about 258 feet, which is 78 meters tall. And to put this into a measurement that you can picture, and I chose this only because I read this as an example in an article, so you guys aren't like, why did you choose this as your example? Uh, so for the height of this tree, it would be if you placed 45 six-foot-tall people on top of each other, head to toe, standing up on top of each other. That's how tall that tree would be. And that's the example this article gave, but take 45 six-foot-tall people and stack okay. them on top of each other. <laughs> Can you picture it? I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> there was another example in this where it had another tree because although that's the tallest in the redwoods there, n north of this park, there are redwood trees that stand about 380 feet, which is 115 meters. And it was about 75 feet. That equals about 75 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty in oh, New York okay. City. I can somehow oh, wow. picture that so, much better than 45 yeah. people that are six feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> standing on top of each other yeah, yeah. <laughs> what an image that's tall it is tall and it's a tree which is pretty cool the national monument does have an extensive history before it was ever designated as a national monument and as federally protected land it is the very first national monument to ever be created solely because of a land donation from an individual person so congressman william kent donated the land to the national park service and requested that it be named after john muir who is a man who we have now known to have been a huge part of conservation but but as we know, he was not the original occupying person of this land. In fact, Muir Woods has an extensive history of the Coast Milwaukee people who have lived there for more than 10,000 years and continue to live there today. They've used these lands to hunt, fish, harvest many native plants for food and medicinal and traditional uses. They've used these lands in a sustainable way and were a direct reason that when colonizers arrived to this area of the world, they found the ecosystems thrive. There was a balance of the flora and fauna. Everything was flourishing. It was just this amazing place to stumble upon. Eventually, though, as we've seen, in the late 1700s, European settlers forced the coast Mohawk people off their land. And with the new arrival with these colonizers, they also brought diseases, forced labor, and indoctrinated indigenous people into their society and religious practices, which led to the destruction of their way of life. Eventually, the logging industry came to California and two million acres of old growth forests were demolished. By the early 20th century, they were almost completely annihilated. And this was when the devastation of these forests were apparent and was when William Kent and his wife Elizabeth Kent purchased the land of Muir Woods for $45,000. Oh my god. With, oh. I know. I'm like, if I could buy a whole monument for 45... It wasn't a monument right, yeah. then, but that much land for yeah, 45000 okay. uh, Amazing. Texas has some cheaper land than New England, though. But yeah, but it's not, <laughs> not as that pretty. Cheap. <laughs> 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 as 
is true. There's no redwood forest down there. (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not. Shortly after William Kent and his wife bought the land, a water company came in and threatened to use eminent domain, which is the power of state to occupy land in the interest of the public, which would result in them taking the land and destruction of the last remaining forest. So William Kent, in turn, instead of going to court to try and fight this decision and try to fight them for the land, instead, while it was still him, he donated it to the National Park Service. He said, this isn't mine anymore. You can have this. And because only very recently at this time, through Teddy Roosevelt's Antiquities Act allowing presidents to create national monuments, it was then designated as a national monument to save the remainder of the Redwood Forest in this area. What a smart chess move. Wow. You know. Yeah. Right? Play checkers, not or play play checkers, not chess. <laughs> play chess, not checkers. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm really bad at chess. I've never played, actually. (laughs) I've never been taught. I haven't either. Yeah. Really? It's a mind. It's a mind game. My brother, he's really good at it. And he is so good at it that it's really tough to play him because he looks at you and just starts laughing because he knows, (laughs) like, you make a move and he just starts laughing. He's like, you're going down. And he'll put me in checkmate in four moves. Yeah. Wow. Like, I I don't. I watched The Queen's Gambit and I loved that show. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's such a good one. So good. But it didn't make me want to learn how to play either. No, no interest. I was like, I will watch it and enjoy and that's it. Yeah. Really? I had the opposite. I was like, I'm going to be a master chess player and take over. No, I didn't have that that urge. Obviously, not well. Here I am. (laughs) Here I am not playing chess still. All right. Well, now that we kind of set the scene, I'm going to talk to you about a story that took place here and... It kind of, its story goes on today in a really fascinating way. So amongst the redwoods that Cassie just described sits a community in decay. Sloping roofs, rotting floorboards, crumbling buildings, and overgrown pathways are the last remains of a once thriving community and are now all that remains to tell a story of a magical time in history now lost to the forest. And that magical time started with a woman named Elsa Gidlow. So we're going to get to know her a little bit before we set the stage of this community. And she is pretty famous. So there's a lot of people who probably already know who she is. I personally had heard her name before, but I didn't really know her full story. So for those of you who are like me and don't know, uh, she was born in Yorkshire, England on December 29th of 1898 and was the oldest of seven children. Her family moved to Montreal when she was pretty young. And while her upbringing wasn't the smoothest. Despite the struggles that her family endured, she tried her best to support her whole family along with her parents and the rest of her siblings. And she was committed to a lot of self-education and proved to be a very gifted writer. After spending some time in Montreal's art circles as a young woman and beginning her career as a freelance journalist, she was co-publisher to the first North American newspaper that openly celebrated and discussed LGBTQ lives and issues within the community. She then moved to Manhattan and then later on moved along to San Francisco. While she was living in California, she began exchanging letters with a woman named Grenfell Qualo, who worked as a waitress back in New York, and they actually never really knew each other when she was on the East Coast, but they had a lot of 
mutual friends in the art community that kind of were like, hey, you guys should link up. You would, get, you would really like each other. And after several exchanges back and forth with letters, Grenfell visited Elsa in the Bay Area and it kind of cemented their relationship. And she never went back to New York and decided to stay with Elsa. At the time, Elsa had been living in Northern California for a few years, doing freelance writing for work while also dipping her toes into political work. She got involved in a political revolution in her neighborhood of Fairfax. Composed of a group of neighbors, they formed a taxpayers association when they became really frustrated over the lack of lighting improvements on their roads. And after organizing several campaigns to boot some of the local officials, she went on to join the town planning commission. And this pissed a lot of people off because they were pretty successful in booting some of those elected officials. And a lot of the politicians that her campaigns were successful in getting rid of started accusing Elsa and her associates of being communists, highlighting some of her radical poetry as evidence. Radical poetry. You mean <laughs> yeah, right. speech. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> so in 1947, she was subpoenaed to testify and the hearing ended up going nowhere, but that whole entire experience, plus the fact that her neighborhood was changing pretty quickly with some rapid urbanization, it prompted Elsa to seek out a more quiet and secluded life, so she began looking for a new home. And in 1954, she finds found it. Because of the times, a single, quote unquote, because she's in a relationship with Grenfell, but two women in a relationship together is not recognized at the time. So society views her as a single woman trying to get credit for a big purchase such as a home was not really a thing. So she actually had to get the help of a friend. Um, and with that help, she bought five acres of forest land in Mill Valley, which is about 15 miles outside of San Francisco on the southwestern side of Mount Tamopolis, which... We've done a story there before a while ago about a serial killer. Do you remember that story? I do. The Trailside Killer. That was a scary one. Yeah, that was really scary. Before his time, thankfully. So the property, which was a chicken ranch, was lined with 50-foot eucalyptus trees, had partially been developed by the previous owners, and Elsa and Grenfell happily moved into the previous owner's cottage and dubbed the property Druid Heights. It sounds very lovely. It gets better. It gets so much better. Eucalyptus trees. I just imagine it smells so nice there and they had a cute little cottage. In a secluded little area. It's like their little slice of heaven. Yeah. And they did share the property with the original owners. So even though they moved into that their existing cottage, the owners were still on the property and their names were Roger and Mary Salmers. And Roger was a brilliant woodworker and a talented musician. He even went on to build a tour bus for Neil Young. Oh, wow. So he's not just like doing this as a side hustle hobby. He is very, very talented. A friend of Roger, a custom furniture maker from the East Coast named Ed Stiles, was also invited to live on the property as sort of a trade. If Ed lent Roger his woodworking tools, he could live and work from the property for free. So he came on over and started living on the property as well. And he went on to build this now kind of developing community, a hot tub out of salvaged materials found throughout the property, which was at the time a chicken ranch. And he built it. It was awesome. And a visitor happened to come by and asked him, hey, like, can you build me one too for my property? And 
that was actually the first time that the first full-time filtered self-regulating redwood hot tub was manufactured. And he went on <laughs> to build a lot of them, which I just thought was really cool. I kind of like cool. want to see a photo of that. I'm sure there's a that lot. I did see intriguing. a few pictures, so you should definitely um, look it up. Yeah. And Roger and Ed went on to make a dynamic duo, designing and building a, the majority of the buildings throughout the property with recycled building materials. And these buildings throughout the property were straight out of fairy tales. There were meditation huts, libraries, different homes, all inspired by architectural styles from throughout the world, from Polynesia to Japan. So this whole building, all these buildings throughout this property are all different and they have like this very whimsical look to them. You can just imagine them like tucked in the redwoods and the eucalyptus trees. And if you want, you can start Googling pictures of Druid Heights just to give it. I want to. Yeah. I'm like, we definitely. <laughs> yes, <have> I will. <laughs> just so you can kind of get imagery going with the story because they are all so beautiful. And it's a big part of um, the story later on as well. By 1957, Elsa and Grenfell had amicably split after over a decade together. And Elsa was now on her own again, aside from Roger, Mary, and Ed, who all lived on the property with her. But she wasn't alone for long because Elsa believed that this could be the place where a longtime dream of hers could become realized. She wrote that Druid Heights had the potential to become the place that she dreamt could, quote, give courage to others with urges to free themselves for deeper fulfillment than the ossified patterns of establishment that culture currently permits. So she's like, this is where you can be yourself and free and kind of like a counterculture type of community where everyone is accepted for whatever they believe or feel or whoever they love. And it didn't take long for that dream to come to fruition. Alan Watts, the English-born philosopher who is renowned for popularizing Eastern religion in the West, whom Elsa had met in the late 60s, became a full-time resident to Druid Heights in 1971. And do you know who Alan Watts is offhand? No. I don't. So I think my um, algorithm knows me really well. <laughs> but um, a lot of like reels and TikToks use audio from some of his recorded lectures. He's very about like the metaphysical and spirituality and meditation. And he's like, he's all over my feed. His originally recorded audio and some of his bits and pieces from his lectures. But he was a really big um, spiritual leader and philosopher at the time. And Elsa and him actually founded the Society for Comparative Philosophy together, which aimed at providing scholars, spiritual leaders, and other acolytes from Eastern philosophy with the means to conduct research, host lectures, and exchange ideas. And once a circular Redwood Library was built in 1972 on the property of Druid Heights, it became his headquarters as well as the headquarters for that society. It was here he hosted lectures, acid trips, and tea <laughs> ceremonies from within its walls and people journeyed. It was like a pilgrimage to this area from around the world to Druid Height to hear him speak, do his lectures, take acid with him, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. Yes. <laughs> As Elsa wanted the property to be a place for growth of the spirit, she welcomed people with open arms who had otherwise been cast off or written off by mainstream society based on their beliefs, their skin color, sexual orientation, or lifestyle choices. And some of the people that she welcomed 
lived here on the property for years and others just stayed for short stints here and there. And the list of people that have been involved in Druid Heights is really extensive, but I just kind of wrote down a few just to give you kind of a little bit of a taste of the variety of people who came here. So this included sex worker rights activist Margot St. James, musicians Dizzy Gillespie, Carlos Santana, Louis Armstrong, Judy Collins, the Doobie Brothers, and Neil Young, comedian Lily Tomlin, and feminist legal scholar and sexual harassment law pioneer Catherine McKinnon, Pulitzer Prize winning poet Gary Snyder, political activist and former U.S. military analyst Daniel Ellsberg, and spiritual leader Ram Dass. Obviously, these are just a handful of the hundreds of writers, artists, actors, musicians, activists, historians, and actors that sought out solace in the Redwoods. And Druid Heights was the place to be. Fun fact, my first favorite song ever was by Santana. It was that song, Smooth. I listened to it on cassette, like on my headphones, nonstop. It was like maybe the first song I ever even heard, to be honest. And when you said Carlos Santana, I'm like, like, I know him. I know him. I love him. (laughs) That's so funny. I, (laughs) I feel like that might be the only song I'm kind of familiar with by him. I'm sure like if I heard it I would be familiar but if someone was like name a Carlos Santana track right now I think that's the only one I could pull that's okay from memory. it's the best one. <laughs> oh, all right well then we're we're good <laughs> Druid Heights hosted some wild parties I'm talking like sex drugs rock and roll people are naked playing music wandering around they hosted all night jam sessions and even served as the location for some porno shoots <laughs> it was really well balanced with that meditation shack, the consciousness and spirituality contemplation aspect. And for decades, it was home to those who felt like they didn't belong anywhere else in the world. And it was at the forefront of social change in American culture. Very cool. And all of this came to a screeching halt in 1972 when the federal government wanted the land. And in 1977, when the National Park Service stepped in and purchased the land that Druid Heights sat on in order to protect endangered species and the watershed due to its close proximity to Muir Woods National Monument. Here we are. I mean, we love the National Park Service, but they've done some pretty uh, messy things in the past. And I think that we can categorize this as that. It's not the first time we've heard of them coming into communities of people living there and taking Mm -hmm. over people's homes and Right. Yeah. And kind of like you discussed earlier with invoking eminent domain, that's exactly what they did for Druid Heights, thus ending this com- thriving community of artists, singers, and philosophers. The Park Service offered to pay $250,000 for the land, a figure that Elsa was pretty insulted by, honestly. I was going to say. I mean, she yeah. has an entire community there, $250,000. That's, I mean, in today's housing market, that's really not anything. And you have this beautiful place that is not just her home. I mean, it sounds like it is a lot of people's homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even though people, not everyone is a permanent resident, it's obviously a very important place. So she began a legal battle against the Park Service, citing that the religious nature of the property should exempt it from being seized. But facing the possibility of homelessness if she didn't settle, she came to an agreement with the government in 1977. The government allowed only legal residents to live there and everyone else was ordered to leave. 
The government also gave each of the owners a choice of either a 25-year-long lease or a lifelong lease. And at this point, Elsa is nearing 80, so she chose the 25-year lease, hoping to maximize the, the lease for the Society of Comparative Philosophy, who was operating there at the time. And Roger and Ed, so Roger, his wife, and Ed, remember those are the other residents from the beginning, they each opted for a life lease, and in all, they received about $82,000 each as well. But they also got to live their rent free, basically, right? They got to live. They were basically allowed to live there for the rest of their lives. Yes. Just didn't own it. Hmm. Yep. Elsa wrote nine of her 13 books at Druid Heights, including her 1986 autobiography titled Elsa, I Come With My Songs, which was the first lesbian autobiography written under the author's real name. So everyone else at that point used different names, pseudonyms, ghostwriter, whatever. And this, she was like very proudly, this is me and this is my work. And in it, she penned the plan that she had in store for Druid Heights, writing, quote, my vision, my dream has been taking shape for a long time. It is a place where compatible women might be brought together for shared activity on many levels. I have the space here for women artists who can develop a camaraderie, and I am calling it the Druid Heights Artist Retreat. And she remained at her Druid Heights home until her death, which happened to be only a month or two after her autobiography was published, so she never got to realize that dream for the Artist Retreat. And unfortunately, the Society for Comparative philosophy fell on really hard times and ultimately dissolved following her death as well. Elsa's ashes are buried under an apple tree in her garden on the property. Alan Watts, who went on to author 25 books, also passed away on the property in what's called the Mandala House in 1973, and half of his remains are buried under his library, which is on Druid Heights as well. The other half are buried in um, a location near Muir Beach. Ed Stiles lived there until his death in 2001, and Ed is the hot tub man that I was talking about earlier. And ironically, he passed away due to heart failure at the age of 74 while he was soaking in one of his hot tubs. I mean, if you gotta go and you're spa day in the hot tub, it's that's kind of poetic. Not a bad way, I right? guess. <laughs> it is poetic. It is poetic, right? And as of 2021, there is one final resident remaining there. Since Elsa's death, tenants rented out her property on and off until 2005, but it has since sat uninhabited. The National Park Service conducts sporadic vegetation and rodent control and minor building upkeep on some of the structures structures throughout Druid Heights, but otherwise, the community has largely left to the mercy of the elements. So if you look up pictures of Druid Heights, you'll see like in its heyday, it's beautiful, obviously very well loved and taken care of. And right now it's just in mass decay, pretty much. All of Elsa's garden, the one that she is interred in, is entirely overgrown. Alan Watts Library, their community center, all of their places of worship have all been damaged by years of exposure to the elements, trespassers, mold, decay, obviously 
issues with rodents and things like that. That's pretty sad. In 2011, the Park Service announced that it had plans to preserve the district and earn it a spot on the National Register of Historic Places, which is awesome news, kind of at surface level. And the service went on to acknowledge the site in its 2014 LGBTQ Heritage Initiative, which highlighted Druid Heights as a site of significance. Druid Heights has been eligible for the register since 2018. If it does get listed, it will be the first federally designated LGBTQ historic district in the entire United States. Oh, wow. Despite these efforts, preservationists and LGBTQ advocates have a pretty big bone to pick with the National Park Service, stating that it has done little to prevent the site from further degradation, let alone preservation. They're like, okay, you have you haven't even preserved it. That's one thing. But at the bare minimum, you have done pretty much nothing to halt the damage that's already been done. So they announced that they were going to make it a national historic site and preserve all of this history and then haven't done anything. They announced their plans. It's like, hey, we're thinking about doing this. And in 2014, and then four years later in 2018, it was formally eligible to make the National Register of Historic Places, but that's the whole problem. Like, there hasn't been really much in the meantime since then. Is there anybody that's working on pushing this forward or is it just kind of halted? Yes. Okay. There is. So granted the process to land a spot on this register is pretty long and complex. The horrid condition of a once thriving communal space that was so important to so many is making a lot of people wonder. We know that this, you know, process is pretty complex and arduous and it's obviously not very easy, but why is the federal government letting the closest thing that America has to an LGBTQ historic district fall apart? Especially when they have just a few years ago announced this whole initiative to highlight LGBTQ spaces Mm -hmm. throughout the National Park Service units as a whole as well. Advocates argue that the poor condition of the site represents a much larger issue. Centuries of anti-gay sentiment and laws, queer history being blotted out. They're like, this is representative of a really much bigger situation. Like if this was a different community of people, then maybe they would have treated this differently is essentially what you're saying? That's what a lot of the advocates are kind of standing on to make their point, drive their point across. Although National Register eligible and listed properties would be monitored on a regular basis to ensure their preservation, register inclusion does not legally mandate preservation, meaning that even if Druid Heights makes the list, protecting the buildings may or may not happen. So... It's not like a guarantee that even if it's like, okay, yep, registered, you're on the list, that anything further would happen automatically. Like there needs to be more. But it would be a big step to be on. It would be a big step. Yep. It would. I feel like if it was registered, then people would be like, hold on a second. This is a registered historic place and you're not. Like, I feel like it would give it like more of a push than we're seeing now. Like you should do something. It would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Like if it gets on the list, then then it's like you're almost obligated to do something rather than just let it go by. Yeah, you're already recognizing it's historic. Yeah, exactly. And it's important. So you would think that Mm -hmm. that would push Mm -hmm. people to have to push the government to have to do something. So you asked about, is there anyone fighting for Druid Heights currently? And there is, there's multiple people, but there is one who has really kind of taken the initiative to be at the forefront of this. And his name is 
Michael Toivonen, a retired woodworker and history buff based nearby in Redwood Valley, is doing pretty much all he can to save Druid Heights. In 2017, he founded the group called Save Druid Heights, which maintains the most thorough and extensive database on the property to date and actually where I got a lot of this information from. He has been in touch with the Park Service and spoken to several different rangers and Park Service representatives throughout the years. And he says that he gets the feeling they don't want people publicizing the property as there is a, quote, tricky balance between preservation efforts and respecting existing residents' privacy, and that drawing further attention to Druid Heights makes it increasingly difficult for us to do our job, end quote. Isn't there only Whoops. one person living there? <laughs> That's like, what I was going to say. Sorry for this entire episode, I guess, drawing attention to it. But yeah, there's, yeah, it's like, it's not this entire community of like, hundreds of people one remaining person who finds this place very meaningful when it's all falling apart yeah. right so they like they from their house is pretty well maintained obviously because they're living in it but the rest of the yeah. whole entire community is crumbling and it's like i understand at face value that statement like there is a balance of like them trying to do their job and you know a lot of different opinions and you know people piping up about it can make it more complicated but but it's like that's never stopped them before from literally uprooting entire towns. And you won't right. uproot. I'm not even saying uproot because we obviously don't want to be like kick this person out. They were they've been there for a long time. But you won't do anything because there's one person when you've historically done things to whole communities. Way worse. Way worse. In a much bigger scale. Yeah, exactly. Not saying not condoning that either, but it just makes you question. It's like Okay, I understand. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Right. Your statement does not make any sense is all I'm getting. They're just trying to find, like, any excuse they can not to do something with it. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people are frustrated about. You know, it's like the hypocrisy with that is frustrating. Yeah. Julian Espinoza, a public affairs specialist for the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, has commented on this issue, stating, quote, We have to prioritize among hundreds of historic structures, some of which are used much more actively for the funding we are allocated to best serve our agency's mandates and the millions of visitors that we receive every year, end quote. However, the agency's back and forth stance on the site, their seeming lack of transparency with the public throughout the register process, and the property's state of disrepair has led a lot of people to think that the park's deferred maintenance approach pretty much means demolition by neglect. Like kind of like, okay, we're going to kind of just like delay this as much as we can. And oops, however many years has gone by and now it's kind of just too far gone to be saved. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And I and I get that the National Park Service obviously has budgets and they're allocated certain amounts of money for certain things. But the reason that people aren't visiting this is because you're allowing it to decay. And it's not it's not publicized. It's not there's no advertising. Like who knows how many untold amounts of people would be thrilled to go somewhere like this if it was accessible and oh, available to them. Absolutely. <laughs> and and simply knew about it. Like that right. I mean, that's one of the key things is is knowing about it. Right. Yeah. And this is I will say like there are a couple of different like YouTube videos out there of people going to this area and like filming and obviously there's pictures of it and things like that but there are a lot of like no trespassing signs around as well as like it's not on many maps like it's not going to be on a 
you know, you go to a monument or like uh, one of the parks and stuff. Hold on. So they're saying that no one's visiting, but there's no trespassing signs? On some of the buildings, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. W- well, I can guess why people aren't visiting. I think a lot of it is like safety <laughs> like- concerns because... Like, there's literally the floors rotting out. Yeah. Like, you could, like, fall and, like, uh. you know, injure yourself and it's not safe. But it's like you're not even giving this space an opportunity for people to do that is the whole problem. Yeah. And it just seems, like you said, for this would be the first historic site for the LGBTQ community in the National Park Service. Is that right? There are some that have uh, designations. Like, I think Obama passed one. It's a National Historic Site. Oh, cool. But there are a couple that are like a kind of like a head nod to the community. But it's not like an entire district of like a historic, like, place where a lot happened you know what i mean it's nothing like this Mm. yes okay so i just fact checked myself so obama designated stonewall national monument to honor the broad lgbtq equality movement and that it was from 2016 i was wondering if it was stonewall because that's where the riots initially broke out um yeah so that's a big historical moment for the lgbtq community for sure Right. So um, there are like the and the National Park Service did announce their initiative to start being more inclusive in this regard. So that's another reason that people are like, that's great. But why are you not doing anything about Druid Heights then if that's the case? Yeah, I found a um, another web. Sorry, I'm Googling it too now because I'm curious. And there's another site that it says parks and LGBTQ heritage. And it has a couple different parks that recognize certain people. And they have Gateway National Recreation Area, Vicksburg National Military Park, Stonewall, like we just said, President's Park. So they have like a couple things and Governor's Island National Monument and a National Historic Trail. So they have a couple. These are really cool. I'd like to learn more about them. They definitely highlight certain aspects or people within the monument or that had an integral part in its creation or in a, a mm-hmm. historical event that happened there, similar to the Stonewall site. Um, but this is, yeah, people are just really upset that this is like a whole community you can go visit. Yeah. And it's just decaying. This isn't just like a blip in a park. This is actually historically an, an entire community right. that is yeah. still there. Mm-hmm. According to the Vice.com article by Leo Rocha that I actually use pretty heavily for a reference for this story, they say, quote, out of the thousands of historic sites the federal government owns, only a handful have been specifically recognized for their role in LGBTQ history. None of the federally owned historic sites have been officially designated as an LGBTQ historic site, and Druid Heights would be the first. While the privacy concerns add an extra layer of complexity, the Park Service's inaction is ultimately contributing to the very same erasure that the agency says it's committed to fighting. So in other words, they're being hypocritical in in their opinion. The preservation and restoration of Druid Heights is time sensitive. Toivonen, uh, the professional woodworker who is the founder of Save Druid Heights, believes that it's not too late for repairs at this point in time, but he's pretty unsure of how much longer that will be the case. Imploring further by saying, quote, prison and military fortifications and national parks are preserved. If you're going to preserve historic places, are you going to diversify? Druid Heights represents 
represent cultural diversity, to which the Park Service said, we do what we can to be stewards of these places and stories with the funding and staff we have. So what will become of Druid Heights is yet to be seen. For now, it sits amongst the redwoods of Mjörn Woods National Monument awaiting its fate. And that's the story of Druid Heights as it stands today. We'll see what happens with it, if any forward movement happens, or if it pops up in the news of preserving it or making the register or, you know, because that's just one step like we talked about. Like, that doesn't mean it's part of, you know, the National Park Service as far as like a monument or an actual park, but we'll see. Yeah, I feel like there is so much, I mean, there's so many feelings to have about that story, right? (laughs) But like, I feel like there's so much potential there that they are missing out on. Because like, if if there is nothing else like this, what a draw that could be for them if they would fix yeah. it up and make it a place that people actually want to go to and advertise it so people actually know about it. It could be it could be such a great place. And it's the location couldn't be better. I mean, it's right yeah. outside of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's in the middle of the country somewhere that's hard to access. People aren't already kind of there for bigger draws. It's like it would be like a day trip somewhere if you're visiting San Francisco or the Bay Area or even if you just want to go yourself like just specifically for that it's just in a prime location the pictures of it obviously if you look up from its heyday are absolutely beautiful and now it's just it's sad to see the pictures of it now with like the roofs caving in and all these I mean the architecture and the woodwork and let alone the history that happened there just from like a purely beautiful standpoint of looking at it you know like all the different structures and things like that is like in and of itself awesome but to know that such a movement took place there and it was an important place of acceptance for a lot of people at a time where they didn't feel like they belonged it's like to let that kind of just go and crumble away and be forgotten is is sad yeah definitely i mean even today there's so many places that people feel like they don't belong and are you know so many trans bills that are going on right now and people having to leave their states so they can get the care that they need and everything and but that was a pivotal time in history that i feel like definitely needs to be preserved and we definitely need to tell that story more and get it out there so i'm I'm so grateful that you brought this story to so many people's attention so that we can follow it and i wonder if there's anybody that like we can contact or you know like you know, on our side, at least have our community reach out to and and be like, hey, we want to see something done with this. I know that yeah. um, Michael's site, Save Druid Heights, which uh, um, we can provide the link to his site in the show description, but he posts a lot of like current events and current articles with what's going on with the effort to save it. And if there's any new big news as far as the register status or anything like that, it's kind of like a uh, up-to-date blog, not only just a historical reference for what Druid Heights once was. It's just like also current events to keep everyone updated. And I'm sure there's updates and things on there. That's the first thing that comes to mind as far as an answer to that. Um, Just because he's at the forefront of really trying to get this site preserved the way that it should be. But yeah, I'm I did find I found this story through Alan Watt, like Alan Watts, 
the philosopher and his pages and his obviously he's long dead now but a lot of his fan pages and stuff on Instagram and I saw his library pictures of his library on Druid Heights site and it's so beautiful and then I was looking more it's like oh he's his ashes are there and then I was like oh really like can you go visit that and it's like "Mm, no and this is the story of Druid Heights I was like this is so much better than I ever thought so I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it and hopefully um, more people pay attention to it yeah this gives me um it's kind of in a, a different realm but it took place in the same area when I did the Julia Butterfly Hill episode where people just rallied around this tree and she was like living in it and advocating for it and it's just like bring everyone to Druid Heights and everyone can't bow and not like saying that I don't want anyone to come after me but um <laughs> but for real like <laughs> I don't want people to be like you told us to go here and it's extremely illegal and we all got arrested but I really do think that when people rally together and you bring attention to a certain subject people have to start paying attention so when you talk about it and mm-hmm. you do things and you figure out ways that you really can get involved and get to these places that's when especially government has to start looking at it when you get these large amounts of people who are coming together to fight for something that they believe in. The government can't be like, we don't have the budget or okay, we can figure out the budget because now too many people care about this and we're in the headlines or, you know, whatever it is, when you get people who care really passionately about something, that is when change happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. We need to get a pride event going on there. Yeah. See, like, that would be Sign us up. We are ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, the potential for really it like... is just crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that we've talked about the Druid Heights community, let's switch gears and focus on yours because you, similar to Elsa, created a community when you felt that there was none. You're like, well, I'm going to do something about that. So obviously, we kind of started the episode with a brief introduction of your community, but I wanted to ask you something specific about because I was browsing your site and yeah. you have a section of it that I felt really um, strongly about. So obviously there's a lot of power within storytelling that's what we do (laughs) that's the whole podcast and on your website you have a page dedicated to story sharing and specifically designed for those who have been discriminated against in an outdoor space so can you tell us a little bit how story sharing helped the community that you created and even yourself yeah. So, I mean, like you said, storytelling is such a powerful thing. And I think that it's become, it's always been a powerful thing, but I think in the last few years, it just becomes more and more powerful as you get the right creatives involved. And and it's just, just an incredible way of being able to drive points home and being able to communicate the the, the big picture behind causes and, and stuff. But what, what you're specifically, I think, referring to, to in short, we call LOVES. It spends, stands for the LGBT Outdoor Visibility Survey, which is part of it. Right now, it's a very um, informal survey that we do to find out how much of our community really loves the outdoors, how much of it has experienced discrimination in outdoor spaces. And when I say outdoor spaces, I mean either like on a trail, in a national park, in a uh, retail store, anything that's related to the outdoors. And questions like that, because right now there's nothing out there like that. And there's so much more of our community that does love the outdoors and does love to get out there than what people would probably even begin to imagine. And some of the stories that we hear through this through the survey and them giving us the opportunity to hear their stories is really heartbreaking and it's kind of a modern twist on discrimination in a way a lot of things that we hear especially with social media you know like one story that we heard was um a guy when he was really he has already he had already come out at this point
point, but he was trying to find himself and really, really accept himself fully in every aspect. And he would go into a trail behind his apartment and really cut loose back there, listening to music and doing catwalking on the trail and just like, you know, having a great time out on the trail. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not one that knows a ton about Snapchat, but I know that you can open up the locations on there and see other like stories that have been filmed in that area. And so one day after he was done, he opened up that just to see what other people were seeing on the trails and check it out. And one of the stories was of him doing dancing on the trails and with a caption, something along like, um, even these woods are full of fairies. And like, Ugh. he might not have even known that that ever happened. And he even said like, it was even hard to really tell that it was him in the video. But the fact that it happened made him feel very uncomfortable about going out into nature and to the outdoors again because of what he experienced he was able to get past that and move and move forward and still has a strong connection to the outdoors but it's stuff like that that we we face as an lgbtq community just because we are who we are and a lot of that drives people to the cities and to to bars and i'm not putting down bars or anything you know there's we can have a fun time anytime you know right yeah but um especially when somebody is coming out and they're trying to find themselves and maybe they aren't receiving the acceptance from their family when you go to a bar it could be a rough place to to start really finding yourself where nature has so much healing and peace and serenity and um, healing aspects that it can bring to you. It's such a better place for that. So we see a lot of different stories that are coming through this that a lot of heartbreaking, um, but we're here to, to help everybody step out and, and get outside. And so um, we want to hopefully make a difference in that aspect. As you should. I mean, everyone deserves to be able to go outside and have fun and do what you love out there without someone being judgment judgmental or hateful towards you. You should be able to catwalk on a trail or right. do whatever you want. You know, these are the outdoors. They're not made for specific types of people. The outdoors are for everybody. And it's really unfortunate to hear stories of people being discriminated solely based on their gender or sexuality or anything is just it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to me because the outdoors are not a place for a category of people you know we are all we're all people we live and have to be outside and enjoy the outdoors and that's it there's no there's no no one this person shouldn't be here and this person should you the outdoors are for everyone and I firmly believe that so I love that you're bringing a community to be here and be like hey you should be here you're allowed to be here you have the right to be here and you should thrive here and not be afraid to so I love that you're doing that yeah absolutely yeah and I think one of the things that's frustrating for our community is like we don't necessarily always we we want to be accepted by everyone right everybody wants to be accepted and loved but more than that like we just don't want people to be so against us you know okay yeah. You don't understand the gay community. You don't understand what it's like to be LGBTQ. That's one thing. But then when you start passing laws or being hateful or, you know, even just saying, comping, uh, making anti-gay comments on social media posts and stuff like that, like we, we just 
we just want to be treated equally and like yeah we just want to be treated equally it's it's not that big of an ask really no no absolutely not it's like the very bare minimum honestly it's like (laughs) right right you know like i don't understand what the whole yeah i mean it's it's sad because as someone in our generation you know like at least i don't know what generation we are in early 30s i don't know what we're categorized millennials Millennials? are we millennials i don't know i think maybe (laughs) either way i don't know (laughs) whatever um you know we feel like and i think it's true with every generation honestly but especially our age it's like you want to be the generation of positive change and every generation Mm -hmm. i feel like has that feeling of like we're doing better we're moving in a better direction like look at the positivity we're bringing in this change and we're gonna do things better this time around and young people know what's up and it's like you almost have this pride about that you know it's like i'm part of that positivity and for a while like i felt at least myself i was like looking at all the in my own world of like and how i viewed it like things are good like we're making strides in a positive direction compared to like my parents generation and acceptance and this that and the other thing but then like all of a sudden it's like we're taking these leaps and bounds backwards it's like Mm -hmm. where is this coming from and where did this happen and with so many of my own peers that feel the extreme opposite of what we're seeing happen it's like how is this happening and what can we do you know and I feel like obviously without getting super political it's like you have to vote and you have to make your voice known and stand up for people that just are fighting for what you said the very basics not a big big Mm -hmm. ask you know when you see these laws being passed like you said how especially Texas is such a Mm -hmm. big area where there's so many bills that are being passed against the trans community and Florida and other places and when you see that it's like now is the time that everyone really needs to start talking and telling these stories and voicing their opinions against this because that's not that's not right and it is like you said it's a huge step back it's like where are we right now right it was like you said not to get super political with it but um you know within the last what seven years or so there's been a rhetoric of of hate you know, not just towards the LGBTQ community, but can just hate in general and anger um, that has kind of unleashed a beast that I think is going to be really hard to put back in its cage. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, one aspect of that is the LGBTQ community, you know, just just the fact I mean, you take drag shows in Tennessee, like, okay, you don't like drag shows, but you're going to ban them because kids shouldn't see them. But why are you taking your kid to a drag show to begin with if you don't like it? Like, if you don't like it, don't go to it. Like, it's just <laughs> right. mind-blowing <laughs> stupidity that we can't even begin to understand. Yeah. But this type of stuff is sweeping all over the South, um, especially all over the South. You know, Texas now has anti-drag mm-hmm. laws that are coming into, I don't know if they've passed yet or exactly we're, we're fighting them right now. Um, and I get that it's Texas, but, you know, again, just let people be people. If they're not actually hurting somebody, just let them enjoy their lives. There's way bigger issues way bigger. than regular how people like to spend their time yeah bigger fish to fry like let's focus on i just feel like we're all just like fighting each other as the planet's burning it's like what can we just (laughs) figure out like refocus Mm -hmm. on bigger issues and yeah but anyway we can beat that horse to death (laughs) but if we Uh, we can and we were going to kind of circling back here we talked about how telling stories is such a big part of 
your community and what you've created, but you've also created a podcast. Can you tell us a bit about your podcast and the stories you tell on there? Yeah, it's it's very new. Um, we don't have a ton of episodes out yet, but it the response has been really amazing, we feel like, for, for a new podcast. But it's just called LGBT Outdoors and LGBT Outdoors Podcast, and you can check it out um, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. But we have um, a certain format that we try to follow that we rotate through. So we have a special guest on and we um, get to talk about them and learn about them, uh, you know, anywhere from biologist in Yellowstone to somebody that just has a really amazing adventure story, whatever it can be to help inspire a community to get outside and unify us. And then we have another one that's called Campfire Conversations, which is just kind of that. We have people share their stories with us and then we kind of discuss them. And some of them are very funny. Some of them are scary. Some of them are inspirational. But again, we want what we're trying to show through that is that, yeah, there might be different aspects to the outdoor. There might be something that is scary about the outdoors or intimidating, but don't let that hold you back from going out and explore exploring it and then the other aspect of the podcast we just have fun with some of our staff and ambassadors so we have ambassadors across the united states that do events in their community and we have i basically send out an email and say the first seven of you that reply back we're going to do a trivia night and uh patrick hosted and we just have a fun time doing trivia and learning about the outdoors and we hope that people can play along and have fun with it as well and it's it's been a fun experience love it and where can everyone listen to your podcast apple podcasts for sure spotify google podcast pretty pretty much at least all the big ones but most likely wherever you listen if you search for lgbt outdoors podcast you'll be able to find it for sure nice amazing it's right up our alley i mean we love all of our listeners love literally all of those topics so (laughs) go over and listen to yours because it is right on topic with everything that everyone who's listening loves yeah we've been having a lot of fun definitely with it and it's a new aspect of lgbt outdoors it's something that we you know we're not that old of an organization but podcasts have really come um up in the last few years it seems like and we just felt like this was a free tool like if we can give our community something free to be able to help connect and unify them to the outdoors then let's do it yeah you said you're fairly new when was this established so i unofficially 2019 so not very long ago at all and it initially was supposed to be just a Instagram account. I started the Instagram account called LGBT Outdoors, and I was going to feature LGBTQ people that love the outdoors to try to encourage our community to get active and, and get out there. And it just snowballed. It just kept rolling down this mountain that we haven't been able to slow down, really. Which that's Isn't that amazing? It's a great though? problem. We started getting these comments just through <laughs> Instagram of like, I found my tribe. This is what I've been looking for. And I'm like, what tribe? What have you been looking for? Like, this is just an Instagram account. Like, (laughs) it wasn't like even a Facebook group or anything at the time that people could get connected in it was just a uh, Instagram account and when we saw that and the response we were getting through it it was just amazing and then we started building from there and I was a professional photographer since 2010 and then when COVID hit especially I was doing weddings that really put a halt on that but getting outdoors was the one thing that we could do so LGBT outdoors Mm -hmm. just took off like a wildfire at that point amazing it's so nice to find that's kind of how we felt when we started National Park after dark we're like oh we'll see what happens maybe our moms will listen (laughs) and then when people rally around it and they're like I found my community you're like because sometimes especially when you get on social media you feel like you're kind of talking to 
outer space and you don't really know who's receiving it. But to get a response like that of like, hey, we're your tribe. We've been waiting for you to appear. You're like, holy shit, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. This is what I was looking for. It starts to put a little more pressure on you (laughs) to take it a little more serious. Yeah, (laughs) sure does. (laughs) Like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I got to really reel this in and get into the nitty gritty on it. Yeah. (laughs) So you said the podcast is fairly new as far as what um, your community is about, but you have projects and events and all that other stuff. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? We have so much going on. Um, yes. <laughs> so as far as let's kind of work our way through it, I guess. So one of the first things that we really started to help because we're in one spot, right? We're right here in the DFW, Dallas, Fort Worth area. What can we do here? And then we wanted to be able to take that out. So we decided to start an ambassador program and we started with two ambassadors, one in Houston and one in Fort Worth, both Texas. Um, And it was amazing to see that start to take off. And we were like, we're using you two as guinea pigs. We're going to see how this works. And if it works, we're going to see if it will expand to other states. And it did. And, you know, one of the stories that came out early on, sorry, I'm going, this might be a long podcast, but I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, (laughs) Our Houston ambassador, you know, he did a fishing event where there was about 12 different people that came together to go fishing at this lake. Some of them were fly fishing. Some of them were traditional fishing. Some of them were couples, some individuals, men, women. Um, We had somebody that wasn't even out. And at one point, they were all underneath this bridge listening to Britney Spears and fishing and having a good time. And the ambassador asked them, how many of you have ever gone fishing with another gay person before? And they all said, we never have. We've only gone with straight friends or family member before. And like, that was my aha moment. Like, this is something that can be really powerful and really transformative. And so at that point, like we started expanding more. And I honestly not sure off the top of my head how many states we have ambassadors in right now. I think I think maybe around 15 or so. That's amazing. But our ambassadors basically do events every other month in their community. And it can be as simple as we're going to go on a picnic out to a park to do a weekend camping trip kayaking, whatever. They 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 set it up. We do all the big part as far as graphics and promoting it and everything, getting it out there. And then they get to lead the event and have a great time in their community. So that was, that's a big part of what we do. And really our ambassador program, we feel is like the heartbeat of LGBT Outdoors. We also have our national event that we do called LGBT Outdoor Fest, which we've done, I believe this fall will be our fourth time. We've done it um, two times in Texas so far. And we did it one year last Last year, it was in um, Estes Park, Colorado. Yeah, we rented the largest cabin lodge at the YMCA right at Estes Park. And it was terrifying because we put down all this money and we're like, Colorado is a huge chapter for us. But like, where is this going to go? Because this is a big leap of faith. And we actually (laughs) sold out of that event. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, our LGBT Outdoor Fest is a time where LGBTQ people come together from across the country. We have a whole bunch of different workshops that they can participate in so that they can learn those things from kayaking, camping, hiking, backpacking, fly fishing, uh, bird watching, just all these different workshops. And then they can take that back to their communities and still know how to do some of these outdoor activities. Because a lot of times LGBTQ people grow up where they don't, they might not be in the, the outdoors or they might not have parents or friends that know about the outdoors. So it's a great way for them to learn. So those are, as far as our bigger events that we do, those are our two aspects of that. And 
and they they're going great our next one is going to be september 22nd through the 24th at a campground called rainbow ranch here in texas and it's a great it's a great campground right on the lake and we're going to have an amazing time so anybody that is part of the community that wants to come on out like we would love to have you yeah, go down. And how many people are, come to these fests? You said you sold out in Colorado. How many people was that? We sold out in Colorado because we had we we just booked one lodge. We could have booked you could book more lodges at the YMCA, but we just did one and got their largest one because we didn't know what to expect the same year. Um, that one I think we had right around sixty people that came to it. Wow, that's a lot. That's a big group. It is. Yeah, especially for like all of the workshops and everything. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And yeah, it is. And we continue to grow. Our very first one, I think we had upper 20s, right around 30 that went. And every time we've done one, we've grown more and more. And so, you know, it might not sound like a huge, like sometimes you hear fest and you think of a big music fest and it might not be that yet, but the way that it's going for this (laughs) year for Texas, we had twice as many people do the early bird registration as we've ever had before. And most people don't sign up until usually about July or August. So we, we don't know how many people we're going to have this time, but it's going to be amazing and the cool thing about the one in texas is it's a camping one so we we all camp out together to be able to do it and if people don't have tents or anything um one of our partners sierra designs donated a bunch of tents to us that we'll be able to help people like people might be intimidated by camping and not know how to set up a tent or not want to be able to travel in with a tent well cool that's all right we got you covered so it's a really fun time yeah. That's so nice because the outdoors can be intimidating, especially mm-hmm. for if you haven't really been out there yet. So to be like, oh my God, I've never been camping. Like, what am I going to do to know that you have when you arrive, you're going to have someone there that's like, hey, I can help you. You've never fished. I'll help you do that. It's just, it makes it feel very exciting instead of very nerve wracking. Yeah. You know, you're like, I have people who are going to help me do all of this and make me maybe really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you you'll be at least better than you were when you showed up but yeah once they get there yeah. and they they you know they check in with us you know like we have somebody that's going to take them to their tent site and show them this is where your tent site is if you have a tent and you need help putting it up well, i'll help you put it up you know if you need a tent and you're like i don't even want to set it up or take it down i just want to show up we have people that will do that and it's going to be set up and ready for you when you get there, you know? So we try to make it as less intimidating yeah. as possible for people. So for everyone who wants, who is hearing this and is like, their eyes are lighting up and they're like, this is my thing. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to either be an ambassador or get involved in a group that an ambassador is already leading or coming to one of your outdoor fests. Where's the best place for people to, to access that information? Yeah, so our website's probably going to be the best place, which is lgbtoutdoors.com um, on there you can find out more information about becoming an ambassador and you can also see who our current ambassadors are and where we have local chapters at and we're always looking to expand for each state we have ambassadors in we have a Facebook group for but our main Facebook group is just LGBT Outdoors so if you search for LGBT Outdoors on Facebook and then click on groups you'll find our big one which um, is very active I forget how many but I think we have over 4,000 people in that one one right now that is a great resource even if you like you're like i'm not sure about doing an event or anything but i'm kind of curious about getting into the outdoors it's a great place for resources or if you're planning a trip and you're going somewhere and you want to find out if somebody has been there and get some pointers from it it's a great resource for that as well very cool and we'll add we'll add the link to your website in our show notes so everyone listening and you don't even have to type it in you can just go right there and click the link and find all of this and on instagram we'll obviously tag you and everything so everyone has quick easy 
access to find you. And of course, we are, um, like we kind of mentioned in the intro, we're obviously, we wanted to do this for a long time, but we're doing it now because of course it's Pride Month. Yes. Yes. Um, so happy Pride Month, yes, everyone. Happy Pride and in honor of that, of course, we not only wanted to highlight a story of, you know, Druid Heights, but we also want to open the door for anyone who feels compelled to make a donation to somewhere that matters. And can you tell us a little bit about where that place may be? Yeah, I know a great place. <laughs> so our organization, <laughs> like I said earlier, is a 501c3. So all donations are tax deductible. I'll say that. Um, but you can make a donation two ways. One way could be going to our website, lgbtoutdoors.com, clicking on the donate button, or it's also just backslash donate. Um, so that's one way that you can do it. Or if you just want to make it really quick and simple, we do have Venmo and take Venmo donations as well, too. And our user on that is just LGBT outdoors as well. So we would love it if people can help us make the outdoor space a more inclusive and diverse place for for our community. That would be incredible. Well, we feel honored that you came on and shared even a little bit about your organization and came on for a story. And, you know, obviously we feel strongly about everything that's going on that we kind of touched upon without getting back into that rabbit hole. But (laughs) we just are really happy that our community and our space that we created can be a place where now you can join in and we can all just fight for a better more inclusive space in the outdoors. Yeah. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for having me. Um, I, uh, I was just handed a note. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> I could see something was happening over there. <laughs> just to mention this, um, if anybody is listening that's a part of the community and wants to come to LGBT Outdoor Fest, you can get a discount. And whenever you go to sign up, just use the code NPAD and you can get a discount to come to LGBT Outdoor Fest in september so just throwing that out there as well oh fun how fun we have a code code. (laughs) we have a code amazing use our code everybody Uh, but i was going to say um i you know i just feel like i everybody i think feels this way that's listening as well is like we feel like we know you we all feel like we're friends with you and so to be able to come on here and be able to share about my passion with your guys's passion about the outdoors and national parks and everything it's just uh, i my team has been hearing about this for a long time and i wouldn't shut up about it and i'm just so excited to be able to be here <laughs> so thank you so much for having me on and being able to um to be able to spread the word of course well the feeling is mutual we feel like we have made friends yes with all of you and it's so nice to actually talk to you and feel like we're having we're not in the same room but i feel like we might as well be one day we gotta (laughs) do a hike together one day one day oh well one day wherever we may meet whether texas we might make a trip down to texas soon we're not in that area but we'll we'll find a place somewhere and we are down to do a hike together awesome it would be great Well, thank you again so much for joining us, Justin. This has been such a fun episode and we're excited that everyone is listening. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Can't thank you enough. Well, everyone, that's the wrap up of this episode. But in the meantime, enjoy the view. Justin, do you want to do the honors? Yes, but watch your back. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Uh, Bye, everyone. (laughs)
Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you have a trail tale or story suggestion, send us an email at stories at npadpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at National Park After Dark and on Twitter at npadpodcast. Join our Outsiders Only community on Patreon or Apple subscriptions to listen ad-free, unlock monthly bonus episodes, and exclusive content. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you are supporting our show. For our exclusive discount code, and source information from today's episode, check out the show notes. For more information on our show, our book recommendations, merch updates, and more, visit our website at npadpodcast.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe from wherever you listen to podcasts.